don't know if uh, you believe as I once did that Christianity is a fairy story or just a moral code, a list of do's and don'ts. Over these weeks running up to Christmas, we're going beyond the nativity story to what the Christian faith actually claims to be. And we've been doing it with the help of the prologue to John's Gospel. We've even put it up around the wall, as you can see. There isn't time to defend all these claims, not even on a month of Sundays, but there is time to sketch them. And I want to encourage you, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, to explore these over time. We must decide for ourselves whether these claims are worth taking seriously. Because they're so stupendous, they must be worth a look over time, not just over mulled wine and a mince pie. Tonight we've come to the two sentences in the prologue. They're actually roughly in that far corner, going round to that corner. And the first is this. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It used to be believed that life began in a spontaneous photochemical reaction somewhere on this planet we call Earth. Darwin, for example, wrote this. In some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric acid, salt, light, heat, and electricity. He proposed this combustible mixture produced a chemical reaction that spawned the first simple life cell. And from that life form, all life as we know it has developed. We now know from science that view simply will not do. The very first simplest life cell needed two components, neither of which could live without the other, a complex protein and the DNA code to control it. And these two are so complex that the Earth isn't old enough for these to have happened by mere chance. That's why other scientists have suggested life began somewhere else in the universe, and a floating plasma one day drifted down to Earth. The truth is, no scientist knows. Science isn't much nearer understanding where life came from than it ever was. And the reason? Because in him was life. And twice in this Gospel of John, Jesus Christ gave himself the title, I am the life. Now, he claims to be the source of all inorganic matter. John has already said that. About halfway down the wall, all things were made through him. But now he's saying something deeper. In him was life, the physical life of all organic species. So that whether I know it or not, I owe my life not just to my parents and a natural biological process, but to Jesus Christ. In fact, all plants and animals, and they're not conscious of it, they owe their lives to Jesus Christ. What a view! A cosmic Christ. But in a particular and special sense, the life that is in Jesus becomes something more to mankind than the life of Jesus is to a flower or a dog. The life that was in him to mankind becomes light. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. 
Now, he may be referring to the life in us, our essential being made in the image of God as we look into our own souls, our consciences, our aspirations, our hopes and fears and dreams, our desire to worship. We see something of God's light within us. He may be referring to the life in the natural world, the reflection of himself in the universe he's created, what is called natural or general revelation. But he must surely also be referring to the life of Jesus, the specific revelation in the coming of Jesus Christ. That there is a light to humanity in the life of Jesus. So, for example, flowers get their light directly from the sun, only indirectly from Jesus. But the Christian claim is that if we're to know the light, the true light, we will get it directly from Jesus, not just from the sun. So that one writer in the Psalms put it like this, for with you, he said, with you, God, is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So John also says, the light shines in the darkness. This is our second sentence. And the darkness has not overcome it. Literally has not grasped it. Has not mastered it. And in both of these two senses, that the darkness hasn't understood it mentally and hasn't overcome it morally. A masterpiece, someone has called it of planned double meaning. John's thought is at its maximum width. So take each in turn. A light that no darkness can understand mentally, intellectually. Jesus claims he's the light of the world. And when he says in chapter 8, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, Obviously, he's not speaking of physical light. The sun is the physical light of the world. But Jesus lights our lives in a different way. Because by ourselves, we cannot make sense of life. We cannot distinguish what is real. We don't want to face the reality even of who we are. And many of us don't want to change who we are. Did you know there are three people inside us? The people we think we are, the people other uh, people think we are, and the people God knows we are. And so Jesus said, whoever lives by the truth comes to me, the light. In chapter 9 of John's Gospel, when he restored the sight to a man born blind, he declared, I am the light of the world, to which the blind man now seeing replied, One thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. He meant it with a double meaning as well. Have you ever been in complete darkness? It may be a rather romantic idea. For example, I remember sleeping in a Turkish desert under the stars, something you never experience in London because it's never totally dark. But miles from any terrestrial sight, you see the stars just shining brightly. 
Of course, even then you have the light of the stars, so you're never in complete darkness. But I have been. When I was a school teacher, I once took a weekend school trip for the most rebellious boys in the school. The ones who'd been caught bullying or taking drugs or stealing. And, and I took them to the Mendips with wetsuits and helmets and ropes, and I took them half a mile down a pothole that I had memorized. I knew it like the back of my hand. These boys were 15 or 16. They were loud, brash, and cocky. Each of us had a lamp on our helmet. But I ensured, now this is a bit of a confession at this point, for which in today's safeguarding world I'd probably lose my job. I made sure that the batteries in our lamps were used and nearly spent. After half an hour, one lamp went out, and then another, and the boys jeered at the first few unfortunates until all our lights had gone, and we were in total pitch black, utter darkness. And I waited until the whole group were terrified. <laughs> and then produced brand new batteries out of my pack. I tell you, for the rest of their school career, those boys were like putty in my hands. <laughs> but I shall probably get emails tomorrow now. Total darkness is a terrifying experience. As is the darkness of which John is writing here. And not only mental darkness, but also moral darkness. For which we need a light no darkness can overcome. Darkness in John is not only absence of light, but the presence of evil. In chapter 3, Jesus tells a very good religious man, a leader, that he has to leave the darkness and come to the light to have life. And when he's gone, Jesus says, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. So that our deepest problem is not just that I can't distinguish what is real, but I cannot do what is right. And so I need a light, not just to understand life, but to overcome life. Now, you may say, I don't need any such rescue in my life. I'm overcoming all the difficulties of life quite adequately on my own, thank you very much. But if you don't have the light of God's forgiveness for your past, you are in darkness still and need a rescue and overcoming light. As the story went on, as Jesus hung on the cross, darkness came over the face of the whole land until three in the afternoon. The light of the world was covered by darkness. A symbol of the world's sin, yours and mine, placed upon Jesus. And then the light was extinguished. But not for long. He came back to life, and he is our rescuer, Saviour is the word the angel used at his birth. And if you don't have the light of God's presence in the present, here and now, you're in darkness still and need a rescue, an overcoming light. 
Darkness in the New Testament is the color, if you can call it that, of the unrelieved absence of God's presence. And if you don't have the light of God's assurance of life in the future, beyond death, again, you're in darkness still and need a rescue, an overcoming light. The most signal example of the failure of the darkness was its inability to destroy Jesus. He came back to life. He is the true light. He lives today. We can know him, and he still shines on. In chapter 12, Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark doesn't know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it. He was talking about himself. So that you may become children of light. I have come, he said, into the world as a light. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus gives light not by pointing to the light. Not by shedding light even but by being light. He is the light. And you know, light always wins in the end. It's an unequal contest. We know this from experience. Light and darkness are not symmetrical. Light dispels the darkness simply by its presence, whereas darkness doesn't extinguish light. There's no such thing as a torch dark that can cast a beam of darkness into the light and make it dark. But there is a thing we call a torch light. It casts a beam of light into the dark, no matter how much darkness there is. And even a tiny amount of light can pierce the dark. A soldier told me last week, from his nighttime training, that in pitch black darkness, for example, in a desert at night, through the telescopic sights of a rifle, the light from a cigarette end can be detected a mile away. The light can pierce. And it can be turned on instantly. Every year there's a celebration of turning on the Christmas lights, isn't there? A famous celebrities invited, there's a grand opening. On an otherwise dark street, the lights cannot bring illumination until the power is connected and the lights are turned on. And instantly, there is light. And God can switch on a light in the human spirit. Just like that. He can flip a switch in your life tonight. So as we read from Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now we read that every Christmas. Because at Christmas, light entered into the world and can enter into your world and mine. Into the darkness, mental and moral, a light has shone. And that light is the life of Jesus. 
Anyone who will turn to Jesus will begin to see the light. They too will say, now I can see. He can take away the confusion, the moral weakness, the fear, the uncertainty. No one else can be your light. No teacher, no wife or husband, no idol, no philosopher, no celebrity, no sporting giant who can deliver you from mental and moral dysfunction. There's only one true light. No one can extinguish his light. No amount of persecution over 2,000 years has been able to snuff out the light of Christ. No one can equal it. And no one will finally escape it. One day it is the light of Jesus by which our lives will be shown up. Every life examined beneath his search. It's a universal light. He's the light of the world, not one of many lights, but the light for all mankind. Well, that's the Christian claim. And we decide either to turn towards it or away from it. Have you ever seen what happens when you turn over a paving stone? What the earwigs and ants and other creepy crawlies do, they scuttle away into the earth. They prefer darkness to light. And when Jesus came, that's what many did and still do today. But not all. When you're faced with Jesus, you're at a decision point. You can scuttle away into darkness or you can come to the light and walk in the light, and be exposed to the light, and begin to shine in the light.